The Weekend Variety Wireless. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. My goodness, there have been some grim ones. And they do make dramatic, amazing stories of human survival and, and human failure and human folly. John, when you sent me through the notes to this, I went, what? I'd now not even heard the name. And yet, look, listeners, this is one of the most grim things you could ever hear about. And it does have a close New Zealand connection. This is the Cospatrick disaster, the ship, the Cospatrick. Tell us the New Zealand connection and uh, just a little about it. Well, she was an emigrant ship. She was carrying people who were leaving the United Kingdom and coming to New Zealand, mostly as assisted immigrants. And so they were prospective New Zealanders, I guess you'd say. The ship's owner at that stage, the Shaw Savilland Company, were the largest transporter of immigrants from the UK to New Zealand. They had a charter from the New Zealand government. The passage of most of the immigrants was either subsidised heavily or paid in full, just in order to get bodies across to New Zealand to assist with the development that was going on there. And this is a pretty big sailing ship, the Cost Patrick, and the idea is fill it full of people. Yeah, absolutely. You, you get a big ship and build a couple of decks in there so you can have a couple of decks worth of people sort of crammed in cheek by jowl, and they really were crammed in too. This vessel was 1,199 tonnes, so she's big, and she's 191 feet or 60 metres long, 10 metres or 34 feet in the beam, so big, roomy ship. But when you consider that at one stage this vessel had carried 532 people, it's like having three houses and then just filling it with people as tightly as you can jam them in there, you can see just what kind of conditions these poor people had to endure. Okay. What was the sort of demographic of the passenger and and the crew? They were known as the rural poor, I guess, was the best way of putting it. They were people who were being squeezed out of British society because there was a drift into the cities, but the cities were full. There weren't enough jobs to go around, and the countryside just wasn't productive enough, and there wasn't enough going on in the UK, really, to keep everyone occupied. So people in in Britain were pretty desperate at that stage, and Ireland and Scotland, of course. So there was a great big pool of people who were just desperate enough to endure these kinds of conditions to go to the far side of the world. This was a New Zealand initiative as much as anything else, wasn't it? Absolutely. Sir Julius Vogel was our premier at that stage, and he was sort of embarking us on what you might call a great leap forward. He's building railways right across the country and just generally trying to sort of increase our infrastructure and give us a real economic boost. Because prior to that, we'd been a bit of a backwater in many ways. But he he had a vision that we would become an incredibly productive farming nation and become a kind of larder to the UK. And this, needless to say, required an enormous amount of manpower. 
Okay, the people that were on the ship, men, women, children, families, the whole lot? Yeah, mostly men, but a lot of women as well, because needless to say, when you're importing a lot of labour, what you're doing is creating a huge gender imbalance. And so single women generally travelled free on these ships. There were a lot of family groups as well, because quite commonly a labourer would decide that there was nothing for them in the UK anymore, and they would take their entire family across with them. What year are we talking about when it sailed? This is 1874. Okay. Uh, life on board the ship, in a nutshell, bloody awful. They were crammed in down below. Quite often the steerage passengers, the poorest of the poor, weren't even really allowed on deck. They, they got maybe a couple of hours, but the rest of the time they had to be down below. There's no portholes or scenic windows or anything like that. There aren't really even advanced sanitation facilities, so people are just living in their own filth. It seems to have been a, a pretty readily accepted fact of life that there would be disease and that there would be fatalities aboard. And I guess when you went aboard, you knew that it was rolling the dice and you just hoped your, your number didn't come up. And this is at a time when not a lot, despite the, a, a massive amount of shipwrecks and a disaster at sea, there wasn't a lot of attention on safety at sea. Yeah, it's just sort of unbelievable, really, that the losses of merchant shipping in those days were pretty dramatic. And they'd been so dramatic in, in the 1850s and the couple of decades between then and the decade we're talking that there had been an attempt to regulate it. And it's only really when you look at the Merchant Shipping Act of 1854 and the Passengers Act of 1855 that you realise how bad things must have been because these put in place just the absolute bare minimum of regulation on how you should operate a ship and how you should look after the safety of your passengers. Clause 27 of the Passengers Act did actually require you to carry life-saving equipment, whereas that hadn't really been much of a requirement before. And of course, <laughs> when you look at what they were required to carry, they were only really obliged to carry lifeboats that would seat one-third of the passengers aboard. So you could have a vast ship with, in some cases, up to about eight or 900 people and lifeboat capacity of only 290, 300 people. And that was perfectly legal. So the whole thing is premised on nothing happening to the ship. As soon as something happens to the ship, you're in massive trouble. Good luck, basically, or bad luck. Exactly right. Okay. This ship, where did it sail from? How long were they at sea before? And where did they go before the disaster occurred? Yeah, well, the Cospatrick loaded in London. Uh, she was at the East India Docks and she piled aboard a, what they called a general cargo. So the kinds of stuff that wasn't being manufactured in New Zealand in those days, which was pretty much everything. And as will become significant as the story goes on, one of the elements of the cargo was spirits and beer and that kind of stuff uh, with an alcohol content. So having loaded her cargo, she shifted down to the immigrant depot that there was and there she loaded four fare-paying passengers, so these are people who are paying the complete fare, and she loaded 432 assisted immigrants. She was carrying a crew of 44, and her master, Alexander Elmsley, had his wife and four-year-old son aboard as well. So all in all, 479 souls. That's quite a community on board this, well, a big ship, but it's very, very tightly packed. It is, it is, it is. And th there are some awful things. We don't know whether it's, it happened on this vessel, but on these so-called coffin ships, these, these immigrant vessels, it was common practice for the sexes to be segregated. So the women would be in the after part of the ship and the men in the forward part of the ship. 
and family groups sort of in the middle. But quite often they would lock the single women in for the night, which, needless to say, wasn't a great thing if uh, a sudden disaster overtook the ship. No reason to believe that was the case on the Cospatrick. But put it this way, if you were a 12-year-old boy, you were reckoned to be an adult male. So you were cast in with the single men uh, in the forepart of the ship away from your your dad or your mum or whoever else you were travelling with. So, yeah, everyone stuffed in as tightly as you could get them and just no regard for humanity in a lot of ways. A lot of people would have thought they knew they were taking their lives in their own hand given the amount of shipwrecks that had been happening. Yeah, there were so many shipwrecks. There were 58, in fact, shipwrecks in 1874 alone. So everyone knew that statistically there was a pretty good chance something would happen to their ship. But on the other hand, in balancing that, the news in terms of ships that were going from the UK up to Australia and New Zealand was actually pretty good. There had been a couple of mishaps, but there'd been very few losses of human life. So you could argue that merchant shipping was in a bad way, but the immigrant shipping was comparatively, statistically safe at that stage. At sea, they'd been at sea two months from September through to the middle of November. That's right. They sailed from Gravesend on which is a fairly foreboding kind of name, I guess, on the 11th of September. She did pretty well and got southwest of Cape of Good Hope on the 17th of November. She'd been at sea for two months. There were the usual fatalities. In the doldrums, it was pretty typical for people to start getting sick, and mostly it was dysentery kind of disorders. And they, of course, hit the young and the weak particularly hard. So eight children had died at that, at that stage. And there'd been two births, which were also generally expected on immigrant ships as well. Hmm. One of those was a stillbirth, but there was one child born just a couple of days before everything went pear-shaped. And that was November the 18th? That's right. About 12.24 in the morning, the single men were defying shipping regulations and were sitting up and playing cards. And they're 200 miles off... Uh, the Cape of Good Hope. That's right. They're okay. 220 miles southwest of Cape of Good Hope, so they're deep in the South Atlantic. Pretty cold. They had good weather at that stage. It was light winds, but bear in mind that this is well south in the world and pretty cold, and they're a long way from anywhere. Yeah, these jokers were sitting down playing cards, and they noticed smoke coming through a grill that ventilated the single men's quarters. They raised the alarm, and it soon became pretty clear that the bosun's locker was a, was on fire. The bosun's locker was the area where most of the ship's stores were were kept, things like paint, turpentine, pitch, which was used as a sort of watertight seal on wooden ships. All this nice flammable stuff crammed into this locker, and it looked like there was a fire established in there. There was a lot of speculation in the subsequent court of inquiry as to how that fire came to be there, but the most likely cause was either an unsuitable lantern was being used in there, and there was evidence from one, at least one seaman that there was a naked flame used to light that area, or the other possibility is spontaneous combustion. There's a lot of linseed oil aboard, and linseed, of course, can spontaneously combust under the right circumstances. Frightening, of course. It's like a fire on an airplane. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can go. And, and this did it catch a light and spread quickly? Yeah, well... It, I should mention that this whole thing has been written up quite brilliantly by a New Zealander by the name of Charles Clark. A book came out a couple of years ago called Women and Children Last. In that, he points out that the way the vessel was constructed with these great big long decks 
with the sleeping accommodation there and the hatches were all open, you've essentially got just a giant chimney, really. It's drawing air through the hatches, it's roaring along the accommodation decks and feeding this fire. So within 15 minutes, the forepart of the vessel was pretty much completely engulfed. There were flames pouring out of the forescuttle, which was the ventilation shaft leading to the bosun's locker. Uh, it was starting to involve the forward deck house, and there was a real danger it was going to get into the rigging as well. And people would be panicking? Yeah, it seems as though reasonably good order was observed at first. All of the passengers were called up on deck, and the women and children were placed on the poop, which is the, the back part of the ship, placed on the after deck. And meanwhile, the crew were sent forward to man the pumps, of which there were two. They were great, big, huge, clunky, hand-cranked, inefficient things. They required two men on each side of them, so four men in total, and they could wind away to the limit of their abilities and produce a compromised trickle of water that could be directed at the fire. But they got on with that, and that seems to have consumed pretty much all of the captain's thinking. As far as he was concerned, he just had to fight this fire. No thought of getting the boats, lifeboats off, what there were of them? No. At first, he seems to have disregarded that as a course of action, even though it was suggested to him. Of course, there was one problem that two of the six boats were actually lashed over the hatch, which was now on fire, so they were goners. So there were six lifeboats aboard, and two of those were lost pretty much immediately. I understand some people just gave up during this conflagration as well. Yeah. Now, those who recall the discussion of the Dundonald that I did a couple of weeks ago, the steward, who is a, a large and unhealthy man, looked at the situation and decided he had no chance. So even though the vessel was sinking, he went and locked himself in his cabin to sort of wait for his end. Apparently, the steward of the Cospatrick did exactly the same thing. Maybe there's a tradition of which I'm not aware of stewards locking themselves in their cabins in, in extremis, but either way, uh, that's what he did, and he was never seen again. I, I guess the cannier members of the crew and, and of the passengers would have been securing positions pretty close to the lifeboats. But there just seems to have been this blind faith that the crew and the captain had everything in hand, and at first, at least, there was not widespread panic. It got pretty bad pretty quickly. Yeah, and what seems to have been the fatal decision is that the second mate ordered the foresail to be struck, which means he wanted it filled up. And what he was thinking, of course, is that he had to stop this great big sail at the front of the vessel catching fire because that would transmit the fire straight into the rigging. But the effect of it was, in fact, to completely remove the ship's manageability and she rounded up into the wind, which means that she swung so that her nose was pointing into the wind. And that had the effect, of course, of blowing the flames along the deck towards the back, where everyone was mustered. As the title of the book you mentioned, there was some heroism, but women and children last. Yeah. There's this grand tradition, and it's a shipwreck that I may well go on to discuss at another time, that at the Birkenhead, actually not too far away from where this this disaster was unfolding. But that actually established the grand tradition of women and children first. And it was sort of the intention of most captains when ordering the abandonment of ships to see that women and children were placed in the boats before anyone else was allowed. But this proved quite difficult in the event. The women and children had one advantage in that they were on the poop deck and handy to the two lifeboats and the captain's gig, which was also there. But the disadvantage is they were much weaker 
and yeah, less well dressed, I guess, to win out in the fight that ensued to get aboard the boats. So the blokes were taking the places in the lifeboats ahead of the women and children? That's right. There was a general rush for one of the boats initially, and so many people packed onto that one that, in fact, the davits holding it up, the devices that held it up and were used to lower it into the water collapsed. And so the boat sort of plunged headfirst into the water, and most of those aboard were either drowned or, yeah, they were left to flounder there for, for as long as that took. And the boat, of course, just dropped into the tide and floated away, upturned. So that was one boat down. There were, in fact, at this stage, three boats left aboard. There was a, another lifeboat on the poop deck, and there was the captain's gig, and there were two further boats which were lashed over the main hatch. There was an attempt to launch the two that were lashed on the main hatch, but apparently these great big heavy boats were upside down. They required the concerted effort of most of the crew to move at the best of times. So when most of the crew were in fact trying to manage all the people aboard or they were just awaiting instruction to, or, or they were fighting the fire or they were awaiting instruction on what they should do, there was just no hope of getting these boats in order to throw into the tide. An attempt was made to cut them free and get them going, but they caught fire before that could be could be managed. Okay. There was only one boat left, and the crew had to defend against male passengers. That's right. As the women and children were loaded on. That's right. So by the time we'd whittled down to one boat, some passengers and crew managed to hurl the captain's gig, the smallest of the boats, overboard, but they neglected to tie it on. And so that floated off without anything attached to it into the night. So we're down to one boat, and this was a single lifeboat capable of holding about 30 people, and there are around 390 people at the, at the stage on the poop deck alongside it. It suddenly occurred to everyone that this boat was their only hope. Some women were already aboard it, as were some men who had seen which way things were heading. What a scene that must have been. Yes, just absolutely awful. The crew seemed to have mounted a quite heroic effort to defend that boat and see that it was loaded with the women and children first. But, yeah, it was hand-to-hand combat. Sailors, generally speaking, carried knives because you needed them when you were surrounded by lots of rigging and that kind of stuff. So you can imagine some pretty horrific battles took place there. In the midst of it all, some fairly compassionate decisions were made. For instance, I mentioned a, a child who was born a couple of days before this disaster happened. The two young parents and their child presented themselves in the midst of all this, and the crew somehow smuggled them onto the boat. And another family group was also put on board as well. But apart from that, it became just a free-for-all. And the rest were doomed. Yep. As soon as that lifeboat was lowered away, apparently, as it was described, the most terrible cries were heard because everyone else left on the deck, about 350 people, realised that their only chance for survival had gone. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. We're talking about, well, none of them are much fun. This one's awful, and it gets awfuler. Massive loss of life already, and what of those that survived? Of course, in order to be able to tell this tale, someone had to survive but the odds were slim and it wasn't many and they weren't well. We'll hear all of that when we return. Shipwreck Tales today, the Cospatrick disaster of 1874, taking prospective New Zealanders, hundreds of them, trying to get to New Zealand. Weekend Variety Wireless.
Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal, the grim tale of the Cos Patrick. At the moment, the place where we're up in this story, hundreds and hundreds of people have either burnt to death on this boat 200 miles off the coast of South Africa, uh, Cape of Good Hope, and how many have managed to make it into a lifeboat, and how soon did the ship go down? Around 35 people managed to get aboard the single lifeboat that was routinely launched in the way that it was supposed to be launched. So far as they're aware, they're the only people left alive. What they've just witnessed is the horrible death, really, of hundreds of people, as you say. I guess in modern times, the only people you can imagine who faced a choice this terrible were those high up in the World Trade Centre, where their choice was to leap to their death or burn to death. These people faced very similar Hobson's choice of jumping into the water with no hope of being rescued. How close by were the people in the lifeboat? They'd pulled just a short distance away pretty much to make sure that they couldn't be seen because it was pretty clear that if they were within swimming range of the ship they were going to be swamped. So in order to save themselves, in order to ensure that anyone survived this shipwreck, they needed to be clear. So they'd gone a couple of hundred yards away I guess and uh, they wanted to stay close to the ship because a ship on fire like that's going to be seen for hundreds of miles, yet they didn't want to be so close that they would become a target for everyone trying to save themselves. The captain was among the last to leave the boat. He waited right up to the last minute and then jumped into the sea with his wife. And the surgeon, who had distinguished himself apparently with acts of enormous compassion as the ship was in its final throes, his last act was to take the four-year-old son of the captain into his arms and jump in with them. Very shortly after that happened, the spirits that were being carried aboard the ship exploded and completely tore it apart, although it continued to burn. So it's the very early hours of the morning. This whole process, this huge ship burned from one end to the other in just 40 minutes. It's quite remarkable, really. It's a, it's a, it just shows how intense that fire must have been. And how long before the ship went down completely? I imagine it wouldn't be long before the people on this lifeboat were alone. Yeah, dawn came and fragments of the ship were still afloat and still burning fiercely. Being wood, she floated, and so anything that was projected above the surface was still burning. The first thing they saw in the, in the morning as daylight broke was a man clinging to a spar, so they had pity on him and picked him up. They could hear voices from others, but they knew there was nothing they could do for them. Other people clinging to wreckage. So what she had is 36 people aboard this 24-and-a-half-foot boat. It's an open boat. 14 of them were crew members, which illustrates just how things stood when people were getting aboard this final boat. Uh-huh. There was the 11-day-old baby and its parents. Oh. Uh, there were two 18-year-olds and an 11-year-old and another boy of unknown age. And there were six women in those 36 people. Supplies? They had a gallon of water, but through bad planning, the water keg, the main water keg, had been taken out of the boat a few days beforehand so that it could be painted. The ship's butcher had slung half a sheep aboard, but, of course, in the scramble to fill the boat with as many people as they could, that got slung out again. So there was no food and just one gallon of water okay. for 35 people. What of the other lifeboats? It wasn't the only one, was it? No. Around noon, the lifeboat that we've just been discussing spotted the other one, which we'd last seen drifting off into the night upturned. It had been righted, which 
in the very cold water, apparently around 14 degrees is typical in that part of the world at that time of year. Some of the people in the water had summoned the energy and the desperation, I guess, to get that boat back up on an even keel, and using caps, the caps from their heads, they'd bailed it out, and there were 26 people aboard. These were all men and boys. Most of them were underdressed, and some of them were completely naked, because bear in mind this this whole awful event had happened in the middle of the night when most people were, were down below asleep. They had no gear. They didn't have a baler or oars. They didn't have water or any food whatsoever. They hailed the first boat and, and said they need, needed an officer. And because the second and first officers from the Cospatrick were aboard the first boat, the second mate was sent across to this boat. He took three others with him. One of them was very keen to go because he noticed that his 11-year-old son was in the other boat. He'd lost his wife and his three other kids, so I imagine this was a pretty poignant reunion. But both the second mate who was sent across and the other man were pretty reluctant to go. Although you'd have to think that looking at a boat full of men and boys, you were probably casting your lot with the stronger crew in many ways because the poor women and the very young children were not likely to last too long. Okay, so we've got two lifeboats there. Yeah, we've got two lifeboats afloat. They're both keeping station fairly close to the remains of the ship. Okay, how long were they adrift? Right, well, 40 hours after the fire broke out, the rest of the ship sank. So there was no reason to linger anymore, and they needed a plan. The plan that was agreed is that they'd have a go at making the Cape of Good Hope, which was 250 miles away, thereabouts. They had no means of propulsion other than a couple of oars aboard one of the boats, but they jury-rigged a sail out of a petticoat and a floor plank, one of the floorboards of one of the boats. They set off, and four days or so after the disaster, they'd been completely without water for four days, most of these people. On the 21st of November, they struck their first storm. Some of them had begun drinking seawater and were pretty debilitated by that. What happens there is that concentrations of salt and other minerals increases in the blood, and the effect is is actually to exacerbate dehydration rather than to ease it. It sends, uh, creates a sort of madness as well. Yes, it does, but yeah. it's the kind of madness that accompanies dehydration generally. It's ah. just a, it's a delirium and a, and a desperation. Yeah. So, yeah, some people were keeping a pretty tenuous grip on their sanity at this point. I would imagine even after four days there would have been some fatalities. At this stage, no one has died, but everyone is in a pretty bad way. Wow. Yeah, but this, a storm comes up on the, the 21st of November... At nine o'clock, it was the last that I should give him his name now, of course. His name's Henry MacDonald. He's the second mate of the Cospatrick. And as we know, he's been shifted across to the other lifeboat. The last he saw of the lifeboat he had left was at nine o'clock that night. And it's likely that that boat was swamped and lost with all hands, some 35 people. Okay, so now that lifeboat's lost and nothing else was ever seen of them. And we're with this man who ends up being able to tell this tale in the boat. What's his situation in this boat? He's sort of in command. He's lucky in that he's got some pretty capable people with him, but he's in a pretty bad way himself. Their ship's being hammered by a storm on the 21st and 22nd of November, and while skating down the face of a wave, the man at the helm, he's trying to steer this great big heavy wooden boat, overloaded heavy wooden boat, with a single oar and he manages to make a mistake in what he's doing and he falls overboard. So this is the man who came across from one boat to the other because he saw his 11-year-old son. So the reunion between father and son didn't last very long. So he fell overboard and drowned. He, He fell overboard and drowned. 
three others died during that same day, uh, presumably through dehydration and just injuries sustained during the shipwreck and the effort to get aboard this boat. Their situation is unspeakably awful. Even once the storm abates, still very cold, and they still have no water, they have no food. That night, on the 22nd of November, they all huddled together for warmth, and in the morning when they sort of sort themselves out again, they discover that five more of their number have died. So we've got 21 people aboard this boat now, and their only hope of survival is what's known as survival cannibalism. Up to this point, they've been putting the bodies over the side, but eventually the decision is taken by unanimous agreement that they, they really just have to start living off the dead. And so a couple of couple of the bodies are butchered, and uh, they get what fluid they can from the bodies as well. They drink their blood, basically. They drink their blood, and of course the blood doesn't flow in a dead body, so they need to create. They need to cut the the dead flesh and then suck on it to to get fluid out. It mm. turns the stomach. Shipwreck tales with John McChrystal. It's turned from more than four hundred people sailing for a new life in New Zealand to a desperate 21 cannibalising for survival in this small lifeboat. We'll return and see what happens from there. The Weekend Variety Wireless. 220 miles off the coast of the Cape of Good Hope, sailing for New Zealand, the Cospatrick caught fire. Hundreds and hundreds died. Two lifeboats, now only one lifeboat and 21 survivors drinking the blood of the dead and surviving on cannibalism. It's pretty grim, but it got even grimmer. John McChrystal. Yeah, didn't get any better. 24th of November, six more people died, and by this stage, there'd been seven days, seven whole days without fresh water. And (laughs) it beggars the imagination, but on the 26th, 50 metres away, they saw a ship. It passed right by them. And it passed them so closely that the wake of the vessel actually rocked the boat quite severely. 50 metres away? 50 metres away. A man named Lewis, who was busy steering at that stage, yelled out, insofar as he had the strength to do so. And he thought he was answered, but the vessel didn't stop. Quite often in these horrible stories, and unfortunately the Cospatrick isn't the only one, a ship does pass the boat and it... it you wonder what the decisions made aboard those vessels are. But, uh, yeah, as we saw, if these ships are so heavily overcrowded and the whole enterprise is so marginal, I guess, in terms of economy, safety, the works, that the risks a captain might take in stopping to pick up extra people, extra desperate people, might just be reckoned too great. So it's almost certain that they, they, they'd have to have seen them 50 metres away. They chose to see you later, buddy. Exactly right, yep. Oh, my God. Yep. Uh, that would put a lot of people in that, well, whomsoever remains in that lifeboat, as if it wasn't despair enough. Exactly right. And it seems as though the, the despair was too great for, for one man who died very shortly afterwards. These guys are living off pretty much just sheer mental fortitude now. There's there's just no physical sustenance available to them. Is the so, 11-year-old still alive? Yeah, the 11-year-old is still alive. There are seven, including that 11-year-old, but the poor little guy, Fred Bentley, dies that night along with another man. So there's only five left, and of those, of those five, only one is a passenger. So out of those 400-odd assisted immigrants who set out for New Zealand, full of hope, We've only got one left at this stage. 
they have a stroke of good fortune in all of this and that a great big raft of kelp floats by and uh, they managed to drag that aboard and there are crabs in it and the float bladders, one of them is canny enough to know that the float bladders are filled with comparatively fresh water. Uh-huh. So they managed to get the only outside assistance they can from a mass of seaweed. So yeah, that's given them a little a little fill-up. But MacDonald, Henry MacDonald, the second mate, fell asleep and woke up to find one of the others gnawing on the heel of his boot. So he kicked So that. this is a situation of basically dementia and really at the edge of death. Yeah, it is. It is. These guys are in the last stages of starvation and dehydration. It's, uh, yeah, forget Bear grills. This is the limits of endurance. MacDonald manages to struggle free from the man who's trying to eat his boot and uh, there's a shower of rain. They were passed by several squalls of rain in these last few days, but none of them fell on the boat, so none of them actually relieved their thirst at all. But from one of these showers of rain, suddenly this great big ship emerges, and this is a vessel called the British Scepter, and the captain's name is Yanka. And for the last few days, these guys have been sailing along through a debris trail, so they know that a substantial ship has been wrecked and they've kept. They've, he's ordered that a, a sharp watch be kept for survivors. Wow. And uh, his vigilance has been rewarded because he finds this boat. What yeah. does he find? In the, what does he see? Yeah, he sees a, a boat with one corpse and the rest who look like corpses and only one man who's showing genuine, vigorous signs of life. Uh, and that's, that's MacDonald. So there are three people and a dead man? There are four people and a dead man Sorry. here. Yeah. So he manages to rescue four people and take aboard a corpse. A couple of days after he does that, one of the men dies. And then a couple of days later, oh, sorry, within 24 hours, one of them died. And then another within um, a couple of days. So four So unretrievable. People. A, a, a nice glass of water is not going to do it for him. He's <laughs> just too far gone. Too far gone. Just too far gone. Okay. Absolutely. And distressingly one of them had a premonition even when he was rescued he said he did he wasn't going to make it so oh. he could feel himself going i guess and he was right within two days he was dead too good heavens so there were three survivors there was henry mcdonald who was second mate there was edward cotter and there was thomas lewis those last two men were able seamen aboard the cospatrick thomas lewis probably saved their lives he was a small boat sailor from birth basically and it was him who handled the boat in the in the worst of the storms. So it's likely that his seamanship saved them. I, uh, I understand that the trauma of this meant that they didn't. some of them didn't uh, survive long even after this. Yeah, when they got back, they, they were damaged people, needless to say. They spent most of the rest of their lives just trying to get past it. MacDonald went back to his wife, but things didn't work so well for him after that. Edward Cotter was the last of them to die. Thomas Lewis descended into alcoholism, I believe. They all fronted the inquiry that was held into the Cospatrick, but they were pretty much disregarded. There seems to have been a um, a predetermined verdict worked out amongst those conducting the inquiry, and the blame was put on the crew, who were accused of pilfering cargo and through some mishap like dropping a candle or, or lighting a match in the wrong place, supposedly causing the fire. That almost certainly didn't happen, but that was the verdict. And, of course, what that did is that absolved the powers that be, the Maritime Board of Trade and Shaw Savile and Company themselves. It absolved them from taking responsibility for what had happened. And so nothing changed, incredibly, despite this awful disaster that 
was very widely felt through England and New Zealand mm. because so many people were related to those travelling on both at both ends of the journey. Right. These are uh, 400 odd New Zealanders that never became New Zealanders. That's right. That's um, right. Did they ever find out the name of the vessel that decided to pass them by? No, although that could probably be done now with a reasonable degree of accuracy. It ought not to be too difficult to work out which ships were in the vicinity mm. and uh, the description of her was relatively good. She was a large grey-painted bark. Mm. But yeah, it, it's academic really, isn't it? That, that yes. Those choices were made and that yep. was the result. The Cospatrick disaster, 1874. Books on these things are great. They're riveting. Tell us the, the book on, on this one if people want to know more. Yeah, this book's a cracker. It's one of the, the best shipwreck books I've read because it's just it's just so well written. It's by a man named Charles Clark who lives in Dunedin. And it's called Women and Children Last. John McChrystal, another awful but gripping tale, uh, The Wreck of the Cospatrick. Thank you very, very much. And another one next week. There's no shortage of them. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Another weekend variety wireless tomorrow evening from 8 o'clock. I've got a better part of 10 minutes, and I can't think of a better thing to do than play this beautiful beat poem by a cat called Tim Minchin. Go have a look at him online. He's great. He does good stuff. This is his beat poem. It's self-explanatory. It's called Storm, and we'll take you to news at midnight. In a North London top floor flat, all white walls, white carpet, white cat, rice paper partitions, modern art and ambition. The host's a physician, bright bloke, has his own practice, his girlfriend's an actress, an old maid of ours from home, and they're always great fun, so to dinner we've come. The fifth guest is an unknown. The hosts have just thrown us together for a favour because this girl's just arrived from Australia and she's moved to North London and she's the sister of someone or has some connection. As we make introductions, I'm struck by her beauty. She's irrefutably fair with dark eyes and dark hair. But as she sits, I admit I'm a little bit wary because I notice the tip of the wing of a fairy tattooed on that popular area just above the derriere. And when she says, I'm Sagittarian, I confess a pigeonhole starts to form and is immediately filled with pigeon when she says her name is Storm. Conversation is initially bright and light-hearted, but it's not long before Storm gets started. You can't know anything. Knowledge is merely opinion. She opines over her Cabernet Sauvignon vis-a-vis some unhippily empirical comment made by me. Not a good start, I think. We're only on pre-dinner drinks, and across the room my wife widens her eyes, silently begs me, be nice. A matrimonial warning not worth ignoring, so I resist the urge to ask Storm whether knowledge is so loose-weave of a morning when deciding whether to leave her apartment by the front door or the window on her second floor. The food is delicious and Storm, whilst avoiding all meat, happily sits and eats as the good doctor, slightly pissedly, holds court on some anachronistic aspect of medical history when Storm suddenly insists, but the human body is a mystery. Science just falls in a hole when it tries to explain the nature of the soul. My hostess throws me a glance. She, like my wife, knows there's a chance I'll be off on one of my rare but fun rants, but I shan't. My lips are sealed. 
I just want to enjoy the meal, and although storm is starting to get my goat, I have no intention of rocking the boat. Although it's becoming a bit of a wrestle, because like her meteorological namesake, Storm has no such concerns for our vessel. Pharmaceutical companies are the enemy. They promote drug dependency at the cost of the natural remedies that are all our bodies need. They are immoral and driven by greed. Why take drugs when herbs can solve it? Why use chemicals when homeopathic solvents can resolve it? I think it's time we all return to live with natural medical alternatives. And try as I like, a small crack appears in my diplomacy dike. By definition, I begin. Alternative medicine, I continue, has either not been proved to work or been proved not to work. Do you know what they call alternative medicine that's been proved to work? Medicine. So you don't believe in any natural remedies? On the contrary, Storm, actually, before I came to tea, I took a remedy derived from the bark of a willow tree, a painkiller that's virtually side-effect-free. It's got a weird name. Darling, what was it again? Masprin? Uh, Basprin? Oh, yes, aspirin, which I paid about a buck for down at the local drugstore. The debate briefly abates as my hosts collect plates, but when they return with desserts, Storm pertly asserts... Shakespeare said it first... There are more things in heaven and earth than exist in your philosophy. Science is just how we're trained to look at reality. It doesn't explain love or spirituality. How does science explain psychics, auras, the afterlife, the power of prayer? I'm becoming aware that I'm staring. I'm like a rabbit suddenly trapped in the blinding headlights of vacuous crap. Maybe it's the Hamlet she just misquaffed or the fifth glass of wine I just quaffed, but my diplomacy dike groans and the asshole held back by its stones can be held back no more. Look, Storm, sorry, I don't mean to bore you, but there's no such thing as an aura. Reading auras is like reading minds or tea leaves or star signs or meridian lines. These people aren't plying a skill. They're either lying or mentally ill. Same goes for people who claim they can hear God's demands or spiritual healers who think they've got magic hands. By the way, why do we think it's okay for people to pretend they can talk to the dead? Isn't that totally fucked in the head, lying to some crying woman whose child has died and telling her you're in touch with the other side? I think that's fundamentally sick. Do we need to clarify here that there's no such thing as a psychic? What are we f***ing to? Do we actually think that Horton heard a who? Do we still believe that Santa brings us gifts, that Michael Jackson didn't have facelifts? Are we still so stunned by circus tricks that we think the dead would want to talk to pricks like John Edward? Storm, to her credit, despite my derision, keeps firing off cliches with startling precision, like a sniper using bollocks for ammunition. You're so sure of your position, but you're just closed-minded. I think you'll find that your faith in science and tests is just as blind as the faith of any fundamentalist. Wow, that's a good point. Let me think for a bit. Oh, wait, my mistake. That's absolute bullshit. Science adjusts its views based on what's observed. Faith is the denial of observation so that belief can be preserved. If you show me that, say, homeopathy works, then I will change my mind. I will spin on a f***ing dime. I'll be as embarrassed as hell, yet I will run through the streets yelling, It's a miracle! Take physics and bin it! Water has memory, and whilst its memory of a long-lost drop of onion juice seems infinite, it somehow forgets all the poo it's had in it. You show me that it works and how it works, and when I've recovered from the shock, I will take a compass and can't fancy that on the side of my cock.
Everyone's just staring now, but I'm pretty pissed and I've dug this far down, so I figure in for a penny, in for a pound. Life is full of mysteries, yeah, but there are answers out there and they won't be found by people sitting around looking serious and saying, isn't life mysterious? Let's sit here and hope. Let's call up the f***ing Pope. Let's go watch Oprah interview Deepak Chopra. If you want to watch telly, you should watch Scooby-Doo. That show was so cool because every time there was a church with a ghoul or a ghost in a school, they looked beneath the mask. And what was inside? The f***ing janitor or the dude who ran the water slide. Because throughout history, every mystery ever solved has turned out to be not magic. Does the idea that there might be knowledge frighten you? Does the idea that one afternoon on Wikipedia might enlighten you frighten you? Does the notion that there might not be a supernatural so blow your hippie noodle that you'd rather just stand in the fog of your inability to Google? Isn't this enough? Just this world? Just this? beautiful, complex, wonderfully unfathomable natural world? How does it so fail to hold our attention that we have to diminish it with the invention of cheap, man-made myths and monsters? If you're so into your Shakespeare, lend me your ear. To gild refined gold, to paint the lily, to throw perfume on the violet, is just fucking silly. Or something like that. Or what about Satchmo? I'll see trees of green, red roses too. And fine if you wish to glorify Krishna and Vishnu in a post-colonial, condescending, bottled up and labelled kind of way, then whatever, that's okay. But here's what gives me a hard-on. I am a tiny, insignificant, ignorant bit of carbon. I have one life... And it is short and unimportant. But thanks to recent scientific advances, I get to live twice as long as my great-great-great-great-uncles and aunts. Twice as long to live this life of mine. Twice as long to love this wife of mine. Twice as many years of friends and wine of sharing curries and getting shitty at good-looking hippies with fairies on their spines and butterflies on their titties. And if perchance I have offended, think but this and all is mended. We'd as well be ten minutes back in time for all the chance you'll change your mind.